And welcome back to the Learning to Sit Still podcast. I want to thank you for taking time out of your day to listen. And if this is your first time joining me, welcome. I am so glad you could be here today. Be sure to hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. And if you enjoy this episode, would you share it with a friend? You can also follow me on Facebook and Instagram where I share short devotionals as well as videos to encourage you in your walk with the Lord. If you are looking for some good resources for deepening your faith, just visit sitstillmydaughter.com where you will find blog posts, free Bible reading plans, and other helpful information. Be sure to sign up to receive the monthly newsletter so you will be the first to know what special events or updates will be taking place in the future. And speaking of events, don't forget to register for the upcoming ladies conference that will take place on April 20th of next year. That link will be in the show notes for you. There is also a contact page on my website where you can submit questions or prayer requests. I would love to pray for you or help in any way I can. All of these links can be found in the show notes, so be sure to take a peek after the episode. Are you ready for the answer to the Bible trivia question I asked you last week? Who was condemned by seven princes? The answer is Vashti and found in Esther 1, verses 14 through 15 and verse 19. Our question for next week is who saw a vessel descending with four-footed beasts, creeping things, and fowl? Who saw a vessel descending with four-footed beasts, creeping things, and fowl. And remember, I will have the answer for you on the next episode. Today, I am delighted to have Bethany Beasley on the podcast, and I know that you will walk away encouraged from our conversation. Bethany's name may ring a bell for those who read the summer 2022 edition of the magazine where she shared her story of her son, William. What started out as an ordinary ultrasound soon turned this young mom's life upside down, but even In the midst of the pain and uncertainty, God was and still remains in control. I know that you will be blessed by how open and honest Bethany is. So without further delay, here is our conversation. Hi, Bethany. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. So for those who um, may have purchased the magazine when it was still running, uh, Bethany wrote for summer of 2022. Um, And so the fun thing is Bethany and I never actually met in person. We kind of knew each other in a roundabout way. We both, uh, she went to Ambassador Reckless College. I, I say I never got a degree there. I just hung out for the fun. Um, And so that's, I always knew Bethany and John from a distance. Always thought they were a very sweet couple. Um, but I followed her on Facebook. And then when her son William's journey came, that's when I began to notice it more. And when the, the, uh, as I was making the magazine, I realized that Bethany's story would be just a wonderful thing to share. So I reached out to her and said, Hey, you know, no, you really don't know me, but I would love to have you write for me. And she did and did a beautiful job. I remember telling her that my editor usually does, you know, some changes to the story, you know, uh, grammar or whatever the structure, but she sent back an email and said, this is 
marvelous. I don't need to do a thing about it. She's, I just love this story. So she was adamant that it was going to do well. And it did, you know, Bethany just has a sweet heart and I'm excited to just bring her on the podcast and share a little bit more. Things have shifted since we've had the the article come out and there's some more fun things that we're going to announce as we go further in, but let's just start Bethany with, um, just telling us a little bit about yourself and your family. Sure. Okay. Well, I'm married to John and he and I have been married for, oh goodness, is it going on 12 years this year? And we have three little boys. Adrian is almost nine and William is six. He's our uh, special boy, medically complex. And then Jack was our surprise baby and he is he just turned three and um so three boys it's a very noisy house and we have a lot of fun <laughs> i am sure i have several friends who have boys and there's just it's just never a dull moment you never know what to expect absolutely absolutely and it's usually something along the lines of where did you get that why is this wet i really hope that that's chocolate pudding something like that <laughs> where it's like you just never know what to expect. So yes, but it's a lot of fun and they're wonderful. Yeah, they're just so sweet. I love seeing pictures of your family and all the things you do. Um, so let's let's kind of jump start with that day that everything really changed for you. Because I know when you read the the article, you said, I just went for a normal ultrasound like you had done with your oldest and you even took your your son with you and you didn't even you said you know john you don't have to come this is just going to be you know easy peasy we're going to have a great ultrasound and see the baby i'll see you when i get home exactly it was not it was not that at all so tell us a little bit about that right so i had already had my 20 week anatomy scan and you know found out the gender and we were super excited and we just thought everything is normal and i had said in my brain everything is normal we're gonna be okay and i think part of the reason i did that is that the year prior i had had a miscarriage and um that was really difficult so in my mind i thought okay i've reached my quota of difficult things and now everything is going to be fine and so we had already had the anatomy scan And they called me right after the anatomy scan and they said, hey, we've made an appointment for you with the high risk doctors. And the reason they gave was that um, our son was super wiggly and they couldn't get good pictures of his face. Um, Come to find out, they just didn't want to worry me and tell me that what they thought they saw was real. They wanted a high risk doctor to tell me. So they said, we've made this appointment. I think it was two days um ahead and so i went to this appointment and i just thought all they want is for me to get good pictures of his face and head and i went in and like you said i brought um adrian with me john went to work because i told him this is just routine no big deal it's just a follow-up and the ultrasound technician was very experienced And, you know, they're not technically supposed to interpret what they see on the screen for the patient, but they, um, this, this technician, she said, listen, I'm not supposed to tell you what I see, but I have to be honest with you. I don't want you to be caught off guard. I can't see your son's left eye. And she starts, she turns the screen toward me and she, you know, rolls the wand back and forth across my belly. And she says, look, here's his right side. And on an ultrasound, 
um, the eye is dark. And um, then you can see the bones of the face, which would be like white or gray on the screen. So we could see his the bones of his face and we could see the dark where his eye would be. Then she rolled the wand over so that we could see the left side of his face. And it was just solid bone, solid white. And at the, at the time I thought, well, what does that mean? You know, like, can you, and she said, I'm gonna go get the doctor. He's gonna wanna see this ultrasound and then we'll discuss plans and all this kind of stuff. So she goes out to get the doctor and I'm laying there in this dark room with my little two-year-old at the time sitting next to me. And he was, I think he was watching Daniel Tiger on my phone. And so I had to bribe him with, I had to bribe him with animal crackers and say, eat these and grab my phone and furiously text my husband, something's wrong with the baby. I don't know. They just said they can't find his eye. Um, doctor comes back in and he was wonderful. He's very used to, to, I think, working with moms who just got really bad news. And from his perspective, he said, looking at your child, the only thing that we can see that might indicate something is the lack of this eye. We can't see anything else going on with any other organs. He looks great. It's just his eye. Um, but they went ahead and did um, full genetic testing, all the sequencing they could do. And I had to wait about three weeks um, for results. And the results came back all clear. Um, they, so they said, as far as we can tell, without actually looking at your child, um, he's going to be fine. He's just missing an eye. And um, so at that point, John and I started praying, like, God, you know, you made the whole world with just your words, you know, you spoke and it was, it would be so easy for you to just change this. You can grow his eye right now with, with, you know, it wouldn't even be an afterthought to you. You could just do it. And we kept praying and kept praying. And I, at the same time, was having more and more appointments and, um, you know, they, I started having more high risk symptoms for my pregnancy and every time they would do an ultrasound, it was just more of the same. And there actually came a time while I was still pregnant where I got this very conscious sense that I needed to stop praying for that specific miracle. And it really, it's not like I didn't have like a Bible verse or anything like that. It was just this very clear sense. Like, I think I need, God has said, no, I need to stop asking. And it was funny because I had a very strong sense of peace that if God told me no about this and that I'm not supposed to keep praying for it, then it's going to be okay. I don't know what that's going to be like. I don't know why necessarily, but I did know that I could, I could, I, I had the freedom to stop asking. And so I did. I don't think my husband ever did. Um, I think he continued asking and asking right up until the time that William was born. I love that. I, I'm, I'm a note taker, so I will be taking notes throughout this. That, that's an interesting, it's an interesting phrasing. You know, I think we, we do struggle with a no sometimes. 
we, we want that, you know, especially, you know, I think I remember from the article, you said, you know, God, I, you know, husband, I are serving you were, I think you were church planters at the time in, in Washington state. And I remember that's just, um, it's very typical of our nature, you know, because we still are human, hundred percent human. And we, we want God to answer. We see these miracles in the Bible and we point back to them and we're like, well, you did it for them. Why not me? And I think sometimes we will struggle with the fact, well, maybe I didn't deserve a yes. Hmm. And I think that's something that, you know, is it's, it is a myth. And that I, I do believe is something that Satan likes to come in and tap and say, well, see, you've got to know because you were bad. Yeah. And we see that definitely displayed in the life of Job, <laughs> you oh, know, his God. friends came and just said, so, I mean, they had, you know, 40 some chapters of things that were wrong with him. And I mean, you talk about the nitpicking to pieces, that was it. And there's like, well, you must've done something. And I think there's, I like the phrase and you said there was freedom to stop asking. We don't ever put it that way. We just said, well, I just stopped. And we stop often because we're either, we have um, given up. Mm-hmm. But we've fallen for the lie that God isn't good. So why bother asking? But you said, I had the freedom to say, I don't have to ask because I can trust you with whatever the outcome is. And I really, I really like that phrasing. And I just really want to drive that home with people that, you know, just because you get a no doesn't mean you're a bad person. Yes. And also I think it was this, this sense of, God may still do what I want him to do, but there's, there's the, it's very, if you haven't experienced it, it's very hard to describe. It was this conscious sense of it's going to be okay, regardless of what happens. And then of course, when William was born, he was born about five and a half weeks early, which isn't significantly early, um, not by a long shot. I have friends whose little ones have come, you know, barely halfway through their pregnancy. So we were very, very blessed that William stayed put as long as he did. Um, but he was born early and um, he was born very, very fast. And I can actually remember um, he came so quickly that it was just the doctor and one nurse in the room with me and she was yelling at the top of her lungs get that NICU team in here now get the ICU team they need to be here now and William came flying out and she grabbed him and turned away from me so that I couldn't see him she was afraid he would not come out breathing she was afraid he might already be gone and I think at the time it didn't quite click um, because, you know, my body had just been through labor. It was fairly traumatic. And, um, but then I remember hearing him cry and that was the thing I was listening for, you know, is, is my baby going to be breathing? Is he going to be alive? And um, so I heard him cry, but it was not, it was not the, pretty little newborn cry that's real high pitched and just beautiful and strong. It was it was very low and kind of raspy and sounded like he couldn't get much air in. Um, 
And when we finally, when I finally was able to get a good look at him, um, it, it turned out that his condition was actually a lot worse than we thought. Um, it wasn't just that he was missing an eye. Um, he was also missing an ear. Um, most of his jaw is actually unformed. Um, it doesn't connect on either side of his face. We couldn't tell that just by looking at him, um, but we found that out a few weeks later. And because of that, he really had a hard time getting air in. Um, his throat wouldn't stay open in order for the air to go down into his lungs, which was why his cry sounded the way it did. And um, I was very thankful. I did get to hold him for about a minute and then they rushed him off to the NICU and put him on oxygen and monitoring and everything they possibly could do to make sure that he was stable. And goodness, the after I left my uh, recovery room and I was getting ready to go up to the maternity ward, um, they wheeled me into the NICU uh, for the first time and just kind of sat me next to his bed and I could barely see him through the side of the bed, but he, it was just, it was so surreal and so frightening. And even though God had given me, you know, like we talked about, God had given me the peace to stop asking at that point, I, I was absolutely terrified. And I remember being up in my room and of course you're in a maternity ward. There's babies everywhere and my baby wasn't there and I would just sit in my bed and you know try to recover from what had just happened and um but didn't get to cuddle my baby and it was very difficult and I was getting all this information from all the doctors and um very overwhelming because I mean they're talking about his kidneys and his lungs and his heart and his liver and his eye and his hearing and how do we want to feed him and all this stuff and it just I'm thinking I've never heard any of this terminology before I don't know what you're talking about and um so it took a very long time of slowly coming to grips with things and praying through and having people pray for me that I was able to move forward kind of into this life and be like, okay, I can learn this. I can, I can do this. Jesus is with me. I can be his mom. Um, but it was, it was very overwhelming. And I mean, you know, it, it's a, a big deal to welcome a new baby. You know, it's, especially you've got one, you know, now you would uh, typically, you know, you're adjusting to, okay, we've got new feeding schedules, adjustments to, you know, you still want to care for the one and you want to um, devote time to your new baby. But this, this is a whole new level. This is um, a child who has special needs. And, you know, like you said, you've never heard any of this terminology. You didn't know what to expect. You know, you're, the doctors are inundating you with information that you're going to have to now process. So as a new mom, like I said, you're processing all this information that the doctors are giving you. What was it for you and John? Because this, you know, obviously it's not just about a new mom. John's a new dad. He's processing this as well. So what, what kind of conversations did you have as parents looking forward to, you know, what was to come? 
Yes. Wow. Um, it was a lot of honesty. I think one of the things that I really prize about John is that he is not afraid of very hard conversations and he is willing to listen to, you know, if I, if I am really struggling with something, he will listen. And not that he never gives, you know, biblical advice or counsel or pushback, but he really does listen to what I am feeling. And I try to give him that same courtesy. And this period of time, I think, I mean, it had always been part of our marriage, but this specific period of time after William was born, it really came to be an absolute necessity. And so one of the things, I mean, honestly, one of the things we had to talk through was how am I going to spend time with William at the hospital while you keep working? And at the time he had a job that required him um, to, I, I don't want to say he traveled a lot because he was always home in the evenings, but he was driving all over North and South Carolina and even into Georgia um just about every day he had it was kind of a repair job and he would go to all these different places so he had to have the car he had to leave at a certain time and he would be gone until a certain time and so we had to figure out how can we be good parents to our son who's at home and needs mom he was only two and then also be good parents to this little one who's laying in hospital bed. And um, we really, um, I like I would get up at, I think I would get up at four in the morning and immediately, I think I, I would fill a thermos with coffee and drive to the hospital. And I would stay there um, for about two hours every morning and then come back and be mom all day until um until john got back from work and then i would leave again and um depending on john's work schedule sometimes he would get to stop by the hospital before going to work so we did the best we could but it was very challenging um i think one of the things that john did specifically that really supported me during that time like i said he would listen but he also he really tried as much as he could to take things off of my plate that would allow me to be with William more because any any new mom will tell you there's this deep emotional need yes but it's a physical need to be in close proximity to your baby you it hurts i i can't describe it was a, an almost physical pain to walk out of the hospital every morning and walk back to my car and not be carrying my baby. Um, it was very hard to go to sleep at night because he wasn't there with us. And um, I am thankful because this type of experience can be very, it, it can be very hard on marital relationships. Um, a lot of marriages end after something like this. And I think 
it's it's the grace of God 100% and it's also the fact that John was willing to put everything every emotion was okay for me to put on the table and every conversation we could have and um we we just realized we are going to stick together through this that's the only way we're going to survive it and I'm very thankful for that. And I, I love that. I think that, um, you know, there's a preciousness when you can be honest. Cause like you said, there are a lot of times that, um, even, you know, your spouse is to be the one you can be the most intimate with and they put barriers in there yep. and they won't let you have these conversations or I don't want to talk about this. And it was a necessity for you to have that conversation, that freedom, that support, it was Mm -hmm. not easy. It was a very difficult season for you, but because I think of, you know, that beautiful connection and honesty, it helped you to get through that. Um, and I do want to tap into, I, I remember hearing once from a lady who had, uh, shared a little bit about her cancer journey one time. I was in a meeting and and overheard that. And she made an interesting statement. She talked about garage friends. And I thought, I've never heard about that. Tell me more. So I listened and she said, what I mean is these were my um, garage friends that would sit in the hospital parking lot to support me. And because this was, of course, during the pandemic, so they couldn't come in. And it just made me think you need the support of not just your spouse and your intimate family, but what kind of support did you get from the people around you that really you, that you could say really just helped in so many ways? Oh my, so much. There was so much. Um, it's funny. We had just joined, um, a a new church about a week before William was born. Actually, I take that back. I think it was four days before he was born, we joined. And then we, you know, I went into labor and within a day, our pastor was there sitting and talking with us and truly caring. Um, We had, um, of course, my parents and John's parents stepped in and they would take Adrian, our two-year-old, every weekend every weekend he got to go to grandma and grandpa's house or nana and pop pop's house and um he loved it he was such he was such a trooper and so they would take him and they would take him to church with them and then the you know the workers in the little two through five-year-olds class would um send me messages and say what a delight adrian was to have there and so they supported me by loving my child and kind of stepping in and saying, hey, I know this is hard, but there are a lot of people who are loving on your child so that you're then free to love on your baby and be there for him. And I remember um, when William was about a month and a half old, uh, he was flown to Charleston, South Carolina for um, a he was there for about three weeks and that's when he got his tracheostomy and we found out a whole lot more about him during that hospital stay much bigger hospital um and while i was staying there of course john 
John stayed for the first week and then he had to go back to work. So I was staying there alone. And my cousin um, was nearby and she drove up and picked me up from the hospital. And she took me and dropped me off at a, let's see. No, she took me, she took me out to dinner and then she dropped me off at a spa. And she said, I want you to get a facial. I want you to get your nails done. I want you to do whatever it is that would feel most relaxing to you. And then I'm going to take you home. And she didn't like, she spent some time with me, but she also recognized that maybe Bethany just needs some time to relax and not talk to anybody about anything. <laughs> and she did that for me. Um, so there were, there were many people who did as much as they could do. And I think a lot of people kind of freeze during times like this, and they're worried about, um, you know, what if I do the wrong thing, or what if this is dumb, or what if I offer to do something and they don't like it? Honestly, I truly believe there's very little that you could attempt to do that would be the wrong thing. Um, it's really just the 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 fact that you thought of the person who was suffering through something and that you acted on it. Um, I'll tell one more story about this specific topic. I had a friend who much later in William's life, this was about a year and a half later, he was in the hospital again for 10 days, I think it was, and he was very, very, very sick. And this friend came and she brought lunch and then she sat down in William's hospital room and she just pulled out her phone and she sat there and she scrolled social media and I scrolled social media and we, I think the TV was on maybe football or something. And we just sat together in silence and she didn't make me feel like, sometimes when you visit someone in the hospital, they can feel like they have to entertain you you know, we have to keep this conversation up and going and upbeat and give you all the details about medical stuff. And she just wanted to be a person who would not let me be alone. And at the time, I thought, am I boring her? But the more I realized, oh, now I get what she was doing. She just wanted to be a person who would sit with me no matter what, and if I wanted to talk, I could. If I didn't feel like talking, we would just be quiet. And that was extremely valuable. And I would say, even if you can't do something financially for someone, being there and being present is so valuable. Um, and it really did, it meant a lot. And I, my mind goes, to a couple of places. Um, when Job was under such pressure and he had gone through such enormous loss, even though his friends would fill a book with statements, they were wise enough in the beginning to say nothing for seven days. Yes. They literally just came and sat where he was. They didn't bring a pillow in their caravan and sit comfortable. They sat with him. And I think sometimes we do miss that fact. We always focus on how bad they were, but initially they were just, we want you to know we're here. 
They didn't say anything. They just sat in silence. Mm -hmm. And I think you're right. We do have this. We feel that silence is uncomfortable. And I, I remember someone saying one time that you can tell a really good friend when you say nothing and you're comfortable with it. It's that comfortable silence that you're just, I'm just here, you know, whenever you're ready, you let me know. And, um, I think we, we do, and and it's, it's a good heart. I think we desire to do something. We want to help. We want to do alleviate in some ways, but, um, there was a, and usually children are one of the best examples. Oh yes. And, (laughs) um, there was this little, and I, it's still one of my favorites, this little girl, their neighbor, had lost her husband, I think. And so this little girl said to her mom, I'm going to go visit, you know, Mrs. So-and-so. And And she's like, okay. So she came back about an hour or so later and her mom's like, well, what did you do? What'd you talk about? Oh, we didn't talk about anything. I just sat on her lap and cried with her. Oh, and you just, it was so simplistic for her. She didn't come with these lists or anything. She just said, I just want to be there with you. And if you want to cry, we're going to cry. If you want to laugh, we're going to laugh. If you want to, like you said, scroll through social media. And I think we just missed that be present. And to be present does not mean we actually do anything. Mm -hmm. It just means I'm here. You know, and God tells us that he says, I may not say anything to you, but I just want you to know, I am with you always, wherever you go, I'm with you. He doesn't say he's talking to us. He doesn't Mm -hmm. say he's doing something. He just says, I am with you. I just want you to know I'm present. And I think, again, that's what that lady meant with the garage friends. They were just there. She knew that they couldn't physically be with her, but they were going to wait. They were there if you need a text, if you need a coffee, or just just so you know, we're here. Yep. And I think that's one of the most precious gifts that you can really give to someone else is to just be there. Yes, absolutely. 100%. So... I know that of course, when William was born, you were able to hold him, but that was really just that split second, you know, that's what it felt like. So what was it like? I know at some point you were able to truly hold him for the first time. What was that like? Well, um, the evening after giving birth, so he was born in the morning that evening after dinner, John and I went down to the ICU and they let us hold him. He was you know, swaddled up and, you know, you could barely see his face and it didn't, I mean, it was nice, but it did, I didn't feel really a whole lot of connection to him. He was asleep. He had wires everywhere. And it was very much an instance of, I mean, we were in this huge ICU room, all the, all the cribs were just lining the walls. So you could see and hear just about everybody. They had privacy curtains that you could pull, but um, it really was just very busy. The first time that I felt a deep connection to William, um, I went down, I think John had gone home that night to stay at home with Adrian and take care of him overnight. And so I was in the hospital alone. And I got up very, very early the next day. And um, surprisingly, I was able to walk (laughs) uh, by myself. I walked down to the elevator and went down to the ICU. And um, it was very quiet because it was super early in the morning. And I walked in and it's dark. And um, 
I might get emotional here. I'm going to try to keep my voice steady. Um, but I walked up and I was just standing beside his crib and just looking at him. And one of the nurses walked up and in my memory, she has red hair. I don't know why that sticks in my head, but she had red hair and she was just the warmest person. And she said, would you like to do some kangaroo care with him? And that's a term that they use in the ICU for um, allowing a mom to hold her baby, um, his bare chest against the mom's chest. And it's something that really helps a baby to calm and settle. It's very good for mom and baby. Um, a lot of hospitals will call it um, skin to skin care, that kind of thing. Um, and I just remember looking up at her and I'm sure my voice was shaking. I said, oh, could I? I had no idea that I was allowed to hold him. And so they got me situated in a chair and two or three nurses had to come help and move him because there were so many wires and so many tubes and they lifted him and they placed him against my chest and just the feeling of the contact of his tiny little body against mine. And even with all the beeping and all the smells of hospital stuff and you know alcohol wipes to keep everything clean and sterile that was my baby and i remember feeling this rush of intense joy and sadness and calm all at the same time and it finally after so much fear over the last day day and a half everything felt right <laughs> right then and um it was it was very priceless and i stayed there for a long time <laughs> um i i was supposed to be i think i was supposed to be taking pain medication or something and i probably missed a dose and just because i didn't want to leave him and when i finally couldn't sit any longer they came and they put him back in bed but i did that as much as i could throughout the remainder of his hospital stay and there were weeks in the middle where I couldn't hold him because he was too sick or too fragile, but anytime I could, I would. It was very, it was very, very special. It was the thing that, it was a thing that I felt like I could do because there was so little that I could do for him, but I could hold him and help him know that he wasn't alone. Mm -hmm. And I think that is just, I remember reading that uh, in the article and it was so precious that you know, you, you have that longing. And I, I guess for me, I, I picked up, I loved the fact that these nurses went the extra mile. They ensured that you could do that because they knew what it meant to you. And I just loved that empathy that they showed and they, they did whatever it took to make yeah. that happen. And I think that is, that is precious. Um, but so how, how long, um, did William stay in the hospital? And then what was it like to take him home for the first time, knowing that, you know, you wouldn't have to be back the next day and the next day? Yes. So he was in the hospital for 105 days. And um, when they finally, when it finally started getting close to, they thought, okay, he's getting close to going home. Um, 
they learned that there's, you know, little superstitions in the hospital and the doctors and nurses would not say the word home if they were standing next to his bed because it seemed like every time they started talking about it, he something would happen and he would need another week or another two weeks or another month. And so we would just say, you know, that thing that we're all looking forward to, that's a very good possibility. You should come tomorrow because we think that's going to happen tomorrow. <laughs> and, um, and of course, um, he came home on October 18th. He was born, so he was born July 6th. He came home October 18th. And um, he... It was it was very overwhelming you think about bringing a new healthy baby home and that's overwhelming. Um, but we came home and he was still because of his tracheostomy and because he then he also had a feeding tube. Um, there was a lot of equipment, there was a lot of wires and a lot of tubing and a lot of setup and a lot of batteries and cords and everything. I remember the area underneath and right next to his bed in our room that we put right next to our bed. It looked like a bunch of black spaghetti all over the floor, just a jumble of wires. And I remember feeling so overwhelmed, like, how am I ever going to figure this out? How are we ever going to get back to normal? And the first big step for me was taking William for a walk outside. And I had a baby wrap, so I would wear him up against my chest. And it was October, so I would have to bundle everybody up and put hats on William and make sure he was really warm. And um, he was using his feeding tube 24 hours a day at that time because his little tummy couldn't handle big amounts of food at one time. So we just had to feed him 24 seven. So I would wear a backpack that had his feeding tube and his food in it. I would put his, um, it's called a pulse oximeter that it monitors how much oxygen is in his blood and how, like what his heart rate is. And I would put that in the backpack so that if anything went wrong, I would know. And I mean, it, there was so much involved, but I would do it. I would get all the stuff and we would go for a walk and it felt like this huge undertaking, but it was something that I could do to work towards being normal again. And I, I am glad that I did it because if I had just decided to stay inside, I think um, the fear would have kind of overcome me at that time. So it, it was very, it was very frightening. It was very overwhelming. And also at that time we qualified for um, it's state subsidized uh, in-home nursing care. So you could have a nurse come and stay with your baby so that you could do things that you needed to do. Um, and at the time we lived in a teeny, teeny, tiny apartment. And I mean, just with the four of us, we were all on top of each other. And, um, I didn't want to introduce another person into the mix. And I didn't realize just how wonderful nursing would be. So the first 18 months of William's life, we had no help. We had no nursing. It was just us. And um, thankfully now, now we have nurses who come at night and they sit with William all night and um, 
take care of him so that we can sleep and not worry about the alarms and anything that might happen. But at that time, William would just sleep right next to our bed. If an alarm went off, we would get up and take care of it. And then we would try to go back to sleep. And we were very, very sleep deprived. <laughs> um, but God gave so much grace. I look back on that time and I wonder how did we survive it? And I honestly think there's really no explanation except for grace. You know, it was very hard and God brought us through it. And I think this is, this would be my next question, which I think fits really well. What, what do you say about this whole journey? How would you looking back, see how did it grow my faith? Oh my. Well, there's, there's a parallel that I like to draw with a, um, a story, two stories in the Bible. So I told you when when I was pregnant with William, we started praying for God to heal him before he was born. And I likened that prayer request to kind of praying for something like the parting of the Red Sea or the feeding of the 5,000, something huge and undeniable and um, just completely life-changing. And that's what we prayed for. And then when he was born, we got Honestly, we got the opposite of what we were praying for. We were asking for him to be made better. And when he was born, it was actually worse than we were expecting. And, um, but then every day there was this plodding faith of, I'm just not gonna stop. I'm just not gonna stop praying. I'm not gonna stop believing I'm not going to stop doing the right things, regardless of how I feel. And again, that's grace because the feelings weren't there. A lot of the time, a lot of the time it was just taking a step forward when you could barely hold your eyes open or everything makes you cry, that sort of thing. And then you look up and now it's six years later and William is doing so well, given his medical prognoses and all of these things that he's gone through, he's doing so phenomenally well. And I look back and I think, okay, you know what that was? It wasn't a miracle like the feeding of the 5,000. It was a miracle like um, Elisha. I always get Elisha and Elijah mixed up. So please forgive me if I'm saying the wrong name, but Elisha along the shores of the creek of the river in Israel, when uh, it was years of drought and God sent ravens to feed him and he would get scraps of bread at, from scavenger birds every day and they would bring him food. Um, and that was how God sustained him through that time of intense famine and drought. And I mean, did, did he want to take food from a scavenger bird? Probably not. It was probably kind of gross, but it also sustained him. And the, what I think of it, it's just like God gave us, even if it was tiny and even if it wasn't what we actually wanted God gave us what we needed at the moment to sustain us just long enough for us to get the next 
if you want to call it installment of his grace and provision. Um, and oh, I had a thought and I lost it. I hate it when that happens. <laughs> um, I, but I would say God, oh, it came back around. Yay. Um, one of the things I read this when William was very tiny, but basically I read that someone had written, you can't buy manna at Costco. Mm -hmm. So we like to stock up, especially us Americans. We like to have a big stock of food that we can draw on. And if something were to happen, we would have plenty of stock and never have to worry about going hungry. But God doesn't, with uh, the children of Israel in the wilderness, he didn't provide in that way. He provided just enough for that day so that their reliance would be on him at all times. And I have learned that as much as I would like to solve the problems of the future right now, I, I just have to take today's manna. And then tomorrow I have to trust that there'll be more manna tomorrow and more manna the day after that. And it's, it's a day by day, step by step. And it sounds so trite because everybody says it, but it's so true that sometimes it's, it's trusting God for the next breath. Sometimes the grief is so strong that you don't know if you're going to be able to drag air back into your lungs after you finish crying. And, but it, it, it comes, the breath comes back in because God is sustaining you through this. And I think, I mean, there's so much I've learned, but that would be the thing that I point to most strongly is that, that, that thought you can't buy manna at Costco, just <laughs> trust God for today. That's all you have to worry about is today. I think um, I I absolutely love that. It's definitely going in my notes somewhere to keep for a rainy day because I like that quote. And I I have a membership at Costco, so I know all about that. <laughs> I've been there. But I think if you examine the scriptures, you will see the idea of today more than anything else. It was day by day, you know, God led the the Israelites with um you know the fire and the cloud today he yep. didn't do like almost like from that brave film with the little will of the wisps the little blue ones he didn't just yep. shine a whole <laughs> pathway like this is the whole way we're going he said no this is where we are today yep and i think we tend to breeze past most of those passages and that idea because we don't like today we we're usually looking for tomorrow, the future, the five year, the 10 year plan, but the Lord's prayer is give us this day, our daily bread. Yes. And Jesus said in Matthew sufficient are today, the, the, the problems yes. it's today, always today. And we, we like tomorrow's we, we write songs about tomorrow's because tomorrow just seems like it's going to be a breath away. It's going to be great. Everything's better tomorrow. But God says, I don't live in the tomorrow. I live today right yes. now. I, yes. I am, I am. And that is a present tense today. And we, we do tend to miss that. And we are, we are hoarders. It, that's why they make television shows <laughs> about hoarders. I mean, yes, they do. <laughs> we oh. love that. I think because when we hoard, 
we feel like we're in control. Yes. And, you know, God had a solution for the Israelites. It turned moldy. He said, yeah, uh-huh. I couldn't use it. <laughs> he says, I told you, no, the only day you're going to be able to hoard is on the Sabbath where you, you can't go out that day. But he no. says, no, we don't hoard. And he says, because I have ample supply. And, it, you know, even when it talks about um, when in, in Psalms, it says, you're a light to my path today, mm-hmm. my feet, just, just, yeah. just enough for today. Yeah. And so I think that principle of today is just something that we breeze past. Mm-hmm. And I like that you learned the difference of the miracles. It wasn't a bam. It was yeah. bit by bit. Yeah. You know? And that's true with, with, with Elijah is that it was, I accept what God's given me today and it's enough. And I think there's God maybe is trying to say, do you trust me? Do you trust me for tomorrow? Um, and perhaps the other principle is that we are told we don't know if we have a tomorrow. Yep. That's another principle we're told. And that's why today is the most important day because we don't know what will happen tomorrow. So live your best, trust your most today. And Mm -hmm. I think that's really what God wants to impart to us. Um, so here's my next question. What would you say in the sense, how has God use this journey with William, his testimony in the lives of others. Oh my, William is, first of all, for all that he has been through, he, his joy is an absolute miracle. Uh, For everything that he has faced, I just look at him and think, how are you the most smiley, contented, joy-filled child not that he's never upset he has very strong opinions and when they are um ignored or crossed or he doesn't get his way he's he's a normal child but he's just so filled with joy and i think that he has taught so many people especially i'm so thankful for social media and i know a lot of you can there are dark sides to social media there's comparison and there's you know people putting up fake personas and all of this but there's also this joy of so many people have watched william grow up and been encouraged and been blessed by seeing god make a way for william and God making a way for our family, um, bringing us through really dark times with his health and his needs. And um, it it has been one of the joys of our lives. I mean, there was one time recently, our family was out in public and this gentleman came running up to us and he said, I know your son. I." follow your wife on Instagram. I know your son, that's William. And he got so excited and he called his wife and his kids over and they got to meet William. And it was beautiful because I could see um, the mom in this particular instance, getting down on her children's level and gently and quietly explaining some of William's differences and explaining why William has a trach just to help him breathe. It's okay. He's fine and encouraging. And um, so William's, William's life has made a difference in 
families and families with small children and William's presence in the world has in a very small microcosm made the world a much more accepting place. Um, when I was a child and definitely before, um, there was a lot of shame surrounding disability, physical difference, um, and all of these kind of things. Back in the, I mean, if you go back to say 1970, 1980, parents of children with disabilities, they were encouraged to put their children into, um, you know, specialized homes, put them away with, with other children, quote unquote, like them, and don't bring them out into society. And so having a child like William and bringing him out to where Again, I hate using this terminology, but it's the easiest way to say it. All the quote unquote normal people are, and they get to see him and say, oh, wait a minute, this child looks different, but he's the same. You know, he likes going to the playground. He likes, um, you know, going for hay rides. He likes going to get pizza, all of these kind of things. And they get to see him, even if they don't meet him, just seeing William makes their world more open. It educates them. It shows them, hey, the image of God, even if they don't believe in God, it shows them the image of God in someone who doesn't look like them. Mm -hmm. And it's so valuable for them to be able to see and recognize and then learn to accept. Because the more they're exposed to someone who's different from them, one, their world gets bigger and then their heart gets bigger. They're able to accept and then turn into someone who could be a friend to someone like William. And it's, it's really encouraging to watch that. Mm. And so here's, so here's my other question. Cause I think, I think it ties in and it, it may be a little difficult, but you know, people who listen to the podcast, they know that uh, I've worked in the pro-life industry, the nonprofit world for um, 13 years. And so being exposed to that, you hear all the arguments, you hear all the, the tragic news that really is associated with, with some of these things and how different is not accepted and different yes. falls into the category of Planned Parenthood wanting to obsolete that. And that is the truth. You know, you, you guys can do your own research on that. Um, so the, the, the statement that's usually made uh, from Planned Parenthood or from, from those on that side, they typically like to say, well, the quality of life is less. So why not, you know, in their mind, like, like Down syndrome children, they're often, you know, more, than, more often than not, there are a lot of them that are aborted because, well, their quality of life would not be that good. So what would you say in response to that uh, argument? Absolutely. I would say to that specifically, um, quality of life is a very, one, it's a very subjective thing. Um, you only have to look at William to know that he loves his life. He loves it. He's so happy. And I feel like if we had if we had missed out on knowing William, and if we had missed out on getting to see him 
even through the really hard stuff, if we had missed out on that, we would have missed out on something so beautiful. And I think one thing that's encouraging to me that I'm starting to see is that people are beginning to accept that life is beautiful, not in spite of the hard things, but because of the hard things. And we all have things in our life that affect the quality of our life. I mean, I have, <laughs> I love to go hiking, but I have a knee that will flare up every once in a while and I can't go hiking when my knee is hurting. And I'm trying to do therapy and stuff for my knee, but that's, if you wanna say quality of life, that's a quality of life thing. Um, and I will tell you this, I have so many friends, they're all online friends <laughs> because I, uh, parents of disabled children rely heavily on um, social media and networking and that kind of thing for support. But I have so many friends of children who are more profoundly disabled than William is. Um, children with um, intractable epilepsy who um, they don't speak, they don't walk, they, um, they require round the clock intensive care, even at home. But you can tell that they know what's going on. They love their mom and dad and their brothers and sisters. Their parents will take them for trips or take them out to the park and you can see the enjoyment on this child's face. And so it's, it's to use the quality of life argument, I feel like it's such a narrow view of what life actually is, you know? And I, I heard somebody talk about um, a child who has very little potential, you know, something along those lines. And someone argued against that and said, honestly, the point is not how much potential the child has, it's what is done for the child to help them reach whatever potential it is, live their own life to the fullest and honor God with that. Even if it doesn't look like, like even if William's life doesn't look like Adrian's life is going to look, you know, they may be very different, but if they are to the best of their ability, fulfilling the purpose for which God has placed them on the earth, then their life is beautiful. And so I, I definitely, I, um, I would stand up against the quality of life argument because even children, even children who aren't able to speak, aren't able to move on their own. You, if you get to know them long enough, you will form a relationship with them that you see, okay, this person does have value. Mm -hmm. This person does bring, not only do they bring value to me, but they pull value from the world around them and they are enjoying their own life. So it, um, it's a very, it's a very long argument, but I, I definitely think there is, um, there's value in every life. I mean, we, we would say that we would say that unequivocally there's value in every life, but I've seen it, you know, I've seen it in these children and it's so incredible to watch it 
and to have my eyes opened every time I interact with them. It's, it's astonishing. And I, I love that. I think what you're saying is, is that it, it's a narrow-minded view when yeah. they're thinking, well, I'm, I'm broad-minded. No, you're really narrowing it by creating this list that if you don't check the boxes, that's not quality of life, but who determines quality of life? Like you said, mm-hmm. William's having a great, he doesn't know about your list. He doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't care about your list to him. Life is great. It involves pizza, Adrian, my younger brother, Jack, and my parents. To me, this is a great life. Absolutely. <laughs> you can narrow it down so, so quickly. And really what you're saying is it, these people, they're living in a box. They're trying to think outside the box and be this progressive people. No, you're actually going back in time to yes. limit them. Um, and I think I like to tap into, you know, when you said the value and I remember an interview that I heard one time, uh, in this, at that point, this young man, he was a quadriplegic. He actually worked in DC as an assistant. Um, mm-hmm. it's amazing to see how far he'd gone, but he, he was asked the question. He was a believer <clears throat> and the guy who was doing the interview was also a believer. And he asked him the question, what do you think gives a person value? And it was, you were expecting kind of this profound, maybe lengthy discussion. He just so simply said the fact that God made me, God took the time to breathe into me life. Therefore I have value. Yes. And that was, it was profound, but it was so simple. It was just mind blowing that we tend to place value on something that you can accomplish. Oh my God said, no. It's, yes. it's simply, I made you, you're my image. That's it. And I loved, I lo- I've never, I've never forgot that. I think I was a teenager when I heard that and I just, it never left. And if we could just grasp that, even as yeah. believers, because sometimes believers, we can put things in boxes, but this young man said, God took the time to make me. He doesn't mm-hmm. make anything without intention. He doesn't do anything at random. He had a purpose for me and mm-hmm. that gives me value and I think you see that in in William's life he he has value just because he's the image of God absolutely absolutely and I think too like there there are on a certain level we will never know unless God allows us I I like to imagine that maybe there will be some kind of a, a library, you know, when we're in the presence of God, maybe a library or um, some, I don't know, of how did God use this story? You know, I, I could go back and maybe pull up a memory that's maybe not so pleasant and say, God, I would love to know how you used that. You know, the things that I never got to see could I see those now? And who knows, maybe we won't care. <laughs> you know, we might get to heaven and just be like, you know what? I don't even care. It's fine. I'm with God. He's He's omniscient. I'm not. But at some level, I think we will never know what God did through William's story, through your story, through all these people who have suffered in the name of Jesus. And, but God knows, and there's so much value to that. Mm, Exactly. Exactly. So, 
So um, what would you say to encourage the hearts of other moms who have children with disabilities? Oh, that's such a, it seems like a simple question. It's a very deep question because a lot of moms of disabled children hear a lot of empty platitudes. Mm -hmm. Things like, oh, mama, you've got this. You're a superhero. You know, things like God only gives special children to special parents and all these kind of things. And a lot of them are just tired. Mm -hmm. They're tired and they know God has a purpose and they know God loves them and loves their child, but it's hard to feel it. And I think what I would say to encourage them is two things. First of all, God knows pain and he knows the feeling of utter exhaustion um, because he experienced it physically. Jesus Christ uh, at one point was so tired that he slept through a storm on a lake in a little boat. <laughs> he slept through it. He, somebody had to go wake him up, you know, because he he was tired. He had been serving and pouring out of himself and he had human limitations in his human body. He was tired. And so I think to just say, you know what? God understands that. He understands where you're at. He knows that you're so tired that as you're trying to read a bedtime story to your child, you're falling asleep. Mm -hmm. He gets it. The other thing I would say is that God values and validates every emotion that you feel right now. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that your responses to your emotions are always right. Mm -hmm. But I would say it does mean that God loves you no matter what your emotion is right now. I have had times, I'm, I'm going to be very, very honest right now, and some people may feel uncomfortable with this particular statement, but I can remember there was a time when William was not well. He was still, he was at home, he was sleeping in his crib. And at that time, our apartment was very small. So his crib was in the dining room. And our living room was, you know, connected to the dining room. And he was supposed to be napping. He was not feeling well. And I was watching him during his nap. He was very sick. And I had gotten up to tend to him and take care of him and make him comfortable again. And then I laid down on the sofa in the living room and I was so hurt and I was so tired and I was so angry that my tiny little baby was this sick that I turned my face to the back of the couch and I punched the couch as hard as I could over and over and over and over again until my whole body ached from how hard I was hitting the couch. And at that moment, if I believe what God says, then at that moment, God was sitting with me 
loving me in that state of emotions. Mm. I'm not saying that my anger was rightly placed. I'm not saying that I was right to explode in anger. I'm not. But what I'm saying is that God loved me through that. And if you're feeling that angry or that sad or that hopeless, God's still there with you. He's not waiting for you to get your emotions in check and feel worshipful before he'll accept you. He loves you now. And I would, and that's something I have to come back to regularly is that I don't feel love toward God right now. I don't feel joy toward God right now, but he loves me and he's going to guide me through these emotions until my faith feels calm again. Mm. So I would say that's a, that's as it sounds like kind of depressing, <laughs> but, um, it's honesty. And I think that's what a lot of parents of disabled children really need is honesty. This is hard, but God loves you. Mm -hmm. And I think I, I love what you're saying. And my mind just goes to numerous places in scripture. I do think that as believers, we kind of come with this concept of, I, I can't approach God until I've got everything in a box. And then I give him the box. No, God says, give me the mess. <laughs> I want the mess, the jumble. And I remember, you know, two things. Um, I was reading through the prayers of the Bible for a year. I did that. Um, mm. And I think I came away with the, the most profound thing that I walked away with was the fact of how vocal some people were with God in their prayers. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you look at sometimes what David said and Moses was the best one. Moses just had no qualms about telling God, I'm tired. I'm fed up with these people. Why did you choose me? Can you just take it back? Can we just, you know, I'm done. And, yeah. you know, I noticed one thing. God never reprimanded him for the venting. You yeah. never saw that. You never saw now Moses. Let's have this conversation about the attitude problem where we seem to be facing this right now. Let's get this in check. But he, and I do believe that that honesty came because he knew God. Moses is one of those few people. He, he had the guts to say, I want to see your glory. He was such in close communion. And we missed that fact. And this is why I always tell people, know God. The more you know him, the more freedom you'll have to come. Yes, there's always a level of respect, 100%. Mm -hmm. but he does invite us to empty, bring it all to me. And the other prayer that I think of specifically is Hannah. Hannah has a very unique prayer in scripture because it's not, it's a want. She comes yeah. with a want. It wasn't even, well, because today we would have said, well, you know, it may not be God's will for you to have children. And she's like, excuse me, I'm not accepting that. But when you listen to what Hannah said, she came to God 100% honest. She didn't put any fluff. She said, I am bitter. I am broken. I am hurting and mm -hmm. I need you to do something about it. And you never hear God saying, shame on you, Hannah. You know, you have a good life. You're loved. Why, what more could you want? No, he, he answered her petition. And I just, I think sometimes as Christians, we are afraid to be honest with God. And like Elizabeth Elliot said, he already knows how you feel. He's yeah. already 
fully aware of the emotions. And sometimes God just says, would you just tell it to me so that we can work through it? If you never talk to me about it, we can never hash it out. We can never work through this process. And I think then, like you said, that overriding arc is he does love us in the good, the bad, and the ugly. And he can handle everything that we we throw at him. And I just love that, you know, it, it, it does require honesty with God. Yes. And I think that's very important to remember. So I know that we are we are having a wonderful time and I, I know. I'm sure that people are thinking, is it ever going to come to an end? Absolutely. Um, but as we kind of bring this down to a close, there's a couple of things. I know that out of this, you have been on a journey to tell William's story in a children's book. So I know that that's actually happened now. It was such a delight to see that post on Facebook and oh, yes. announcement. So tell us a little bit about that part. Absolutely. So, um, I have written a children's book. It's called William Tries Again. And I wrote it specifically, one, because I want people to meet William. Um, but also, I noticed in children's literature, you only see disabled children. Usually, this is changing. But generally speaking, you only see disabled children in one of two ways. First way is as a secondary character. Most of the time they're on one page of the book and they're usually in a wheelchair. You know, they're in a group of children and you've got one kid in a wheelchair. They're not even really referenced. They don't have any anything to do with the story except that they're just kind of there. Um, and that's fine. That's fine. That's a good step of inclusion. The other way you see disabled children in literature is that they are the main character but the story is about disability and explaining disability, explaining what it's like, explaining how to relate with someone with a disability. And those are all very important. But I didn't see a whole lot of stories about a disabled child telling a normal story, letting the child be the main character without also centering their disability as essential to their life. Um, most people with a disability will say, absolutely, I am disabled, but that's not the only thing that I am. And so I wanted to tell stories that said, look, a disabled child or a child with um, a facial difference or a limb difference or whatever, they also have just typical human experiences. And this type of story accomplishes two things. One, it allows a disabled child to see themselves in a story. And when you're used to seeing yourself in stories, you don't recognize how important that is. But it is important for a child to go, wait a minute, that kid looks like me. And to feel included, like, wow, that's so special. Um, the other thing it accomplishes, and I think this is so valuable is that it allows children who do not have disabilities and children who don't know anyone with disabilities to form a mental connection of saying that child doesn't look like me but he thinks like me he acts like me he um goes through some of the same things as me and they can make that connection and it forms the basis 
for future acceptance if they do meet someone who looks different from them. Um, one thing that I did in William Tries Again, um, I included at the back of the book a page of frequently asked questions and simple answers that you can give to your children as you're reading the book. So William has a tracheostomy. What is that thing coming out of his throat? That's probably how your child will ask it. They're not going to be delicate about it. They're What is that? And so you can say, oh, that's a tracheostomy. It's a special tube that helps William breathe. Isn't that cool? Mm -hmm. You know, where is William's left eye? Oh, William was born with golden heart syndrome. You might not say that to your child, but William was born with golden heart syndrome. It affected the way his face was formed but he can still see you and he can still hear you. Sounds like he would be a good friend. And it opens the door for children to ask very pointed, blunt questions in a safe environment where they can get answers without being offensive to someone. And um, it's very important for kids to know, I can ask my parents anything and my parents will do their best to answer. And so I wanted to create an avenue to one, open the door to those questions and then also give answers to those questions that are age appropriate. And I, I, I love I love the cover. I think it's so beautiful. Um, I come from a, a background of graphics design. I was like, oh, it's so beautifully crafted. You did such <laughs> a, a beautiful job. Now, where can people purchase a copy of the book? Yes. Um, so it's available on Amazon. Um, it's also available on, um, it's only available online right now, but Walmart and also, um, Barnes and Noble also carry it. And I believe target the easiest way to get it is Amazon. And I'll make sure to get you that link. Um, uh, but yes, it is available online. Okay, good. And I know I definitely always like to encourage that and put that in the show notes, but as we wrap up, I know we probably said that once already. Um, I do want to circle back to one thing. Um, what would you say to those who want to help? Like we, we've talked about it briefly, but like really kind of specifically, what are ways that, you know, if, if they have a family who's going through something similar, how can they be a blessing? And then I, I just, we have to talk about this. What do we not say? Because oh. I think there are things that, you know, it comes, like you said, from, a, a, you know, like a, you're a super mom and things like that. I know it comes from a, a good heart. I do know that. But mm -hmm. sometimes we put out these sayings and they weren't really the best thing at the time or ever to really say. And how can we retrain our mind to think carefully before we, we say certain things? Sure. Well, to your first question, ways to help. Um, I think the main thing is never say, what can I do to help? Or if you need help, call me. We're not going to call. Or I mean, almost unless you've got someone who's super brave and confident, we're just not, we're too tired. We're too tired. And we already feel like we're asking too much of our friends. We're just not, you know, and it, puts the burden back on the person who's struggling. So just always offer you, you do the, you do the mind work beforehand and say, okay, I could do this, this, or this. Um, 
For example, I can send you DoorDash. I can bring you a meal. I can pick up the kids and take them to a playground for two hours so that you can have the house quiet to yourself or so that you can go to doctor's appointment or whatever. I can do those things. What day works for you? And then, but always with the caveat, if you don't want me to do this, I will not be offended. You know, but just say, I, I mean, I have had friends say, hey, tomorrow I'm bringing dinner. I can do spaghetti or I can do roast chicken. Which do you want? So they don't give me, really, they don't give me a clear path of like, hey, would you like dinner? Would you, you know, they just say, I'm doing it. I want to be there for you. And they, you have to be bold with that. So the thing I would say for how to help is have specific things that you feel like you can do and then allow them a little bit of range to either choose a time frame or choose an item or choose the thing from your list that would be helpful. Um, also, unless you're super close friends with the person, I would encourage you to text, don't call. Because a lot of times picking up the phone and using your voice when you've just been crying all day is really hard. Texting is way easier. You can use emojis, you can make it light, and it just, it feels less emotionally vulnerable. Um, so when it comes to things not to say to someone who is suffering, um, I think the most important thing is to be okay. You actually referenced this earlier. Be, be okay with not knowing what to say. Acknowledge that what they're going through is really hard. Um, you, you could say something along the lines of, hey, I know that right now things are really hard. And I just want you to know that I am here for you and I care about you. And I want to support you in any way I can. Just that. You don't have to say, hey, God's got a purpose behind it, or, you know, God makes all things beautiful in his time, or, you know, God's got you. All those things are true. And the person who's suffering likely knows that, but what it feels like when it's said by someone who's not suffering is it feels like a Band-Aid or a, a participation sticker. You know, like, hey, I know, I know this is hard, but do you want a sticker? Do you want to, you, you know, you want a popsicle to make it all better? It's like, no, that's not going to work. Um, so really, and this this might, it may feel a little uncomfortable, but a lot of times even sharing a Bible verse, it needs to be in a context of a longer conversation. If you're just going to text somebody a Bible verse and, you know, Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. It's like, Okay, how about can you weep with me for a little while? Can you can you let me feel this because right now I do want to rejoice in the Lord, but right now I'm kind of weeping in the Lord and I I need someone to just be okay with that. So, um 
yeah a lot of the a lot of the light and fluffy stuff um just set that aside and say i'm gonna be comfortable with this person's sadness and i'm not gonna try to rush them through it to the other side i'm gonna let them be sad and you know offer an ear if they don't want to talk then make sure they have your number and say hey text me if you want to vent and then leave it alone and i think really as a church um especially in the west we have gotten away from the idea of being comfortable with lament and being comfortable with grief and saying you know what jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and so we can be people of sorrow and acquainted with grief. It doesn't mean we're identified as sorrowful, but sorrow is not an enemy. It can actually be kind of the avenue to which we reach much, much, much deeper joy. Mm -hmm. And I, I agree um, wholeheartedly with that. And I, I don't know, not everybody watches cartoons, um, but I did enjoy many aspects of the film Inside Out. Oh my, yes. I think it was very relatable. <laughs> I can't watch it without crying. I really can't. It's so poignant to me. <laughs> it really, and there were so many good um, references. And I think one of the things as you were talking, I thought about the character Joy. Mm -hmm. And she was obsessed with Joy. No, it all because her color was yellow, and that's the memories. They have to be yellow. She she hated the fact of um, anything red or green or purple, which was anger and disgust and fear. And I remember at the beginning of the film, she says, "And sadness." I I don't know what she does, even why she's here. <laughs> it's so it's such a funny thing because we we are like joy we we like to be like joy well it all has to be yellow and god says no i did give you a gamut of emotions there is joy but there's sorrow there's disappointment there's grief we look at you know what the bible says that hope deferred makes the heart sick um so we are human beings that do run a wide uh, gamut of emotions and i think even when you read the scriptures grieve not the Holy Spirit. He can be grieved. He doesn't feel joy all the time. He can be grieved. He can hurt with you and we can hurt him. So I think that's, that's just an important thing to remember is you don't have to fix it. Sometimes the best thing you can do is just listen. Don't, don't bring your, your first aid kit. That's, that's sometimes it's best <laughs> left in the car. <laughs> yep. Bring yep. a box of tissues that might be more productive. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love that you said you don't have to fix it because often you can't. Often there's nothing that will fix it. And it's just sad. And that's okay. And eventually, once you're able to feel that sadness all the way through, without shortcutting it, without trying to make it better or make it you know, more palatable, just let it be sadness. And then once you've fully experienced that emotion, then you can step forward with, it may not be stepping forward with joy. Sometimes it's stepping forward with grim determination, 
but it's still moving forward and joy is going to come back. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, I think we, we should embrace, and I want to be careful how I say it, but embrace the sadness because yes. I believe that there is a step in the process. Cause again, referencing that inside out film, if you haven't seen it, it, it is a very interesting film. Um, the turning point in the show, in the film was sadness. She was the missing mm-hmm. link to fixing this little 11 or 12 year old girl. And it, and I think that's, that's the part that I cry is that it was in her moment of deepest grief that she comes to her parents, that she gets the healing that she needed. Yeah. And I think sometimes we miss that step and we walk around hurting and we're wondering why, and we're wondering where's the joy. And God says, sometimes you just need to cry. And then I'll wrap you in my arms. I'll remind you of my love. And then we move forward and you can enter into that, that joy. And, um, so I just, I definitely want to encourage people that, um, you know, think before you speak to somebody and never feel like you have to have all the answers because God's the only one who does. Yep. And we're not God. As I know, a, a pastor friend of ours used to say, I'm not God. Um, I need you to, you, we're just plain human beings and we need plain other human beings to just be like us. Don't feel like you have to come with this. Uh, I, I'm here to help. No, I'm just, I'm going to help by just being here. And I think yeah. that's really what I've heard that the overriding theme from you is just be there. Yep. So I appreciate really Bethany, you taking this, this amount of time. Um, I could stay all day. I tell people all <laughs> the time. I just invite people on this podcast to interview because I want to have a lovely conversation. And yes. that's the whole reason. <laughs> but I, I just, you've been an inspiration. Um, I know that you have helped so many others uh, in your journey, just being transparent. You were willing to take that step and share because some people, they like to cage it off, but you were willing to take us through those vulnerable moments all these years with William. And I think that is something that's just beautiful that I know God will continue to use. And I, and I know you may not see all the fruits, but I know that they're there. And I know that people may not even come to you and say it, but they're, they are so thankful that you were willing to share your story. And I've always told people, we all have a story to share. It is not for everyone, but someone needs your story. And I, I really pray that this episode is a blessing to women who listen and that it will be shared and that uh, definitely go pick up that book from William tries again and purchase it. And I think I did see somebody from your social media that actually purchased it and gave it to the library. That was a yes. wonderful idea. Yeah. I was like, that's such a great idea. Cause then so many more children will get to enjoy it, you know, on a rotating basis and it'll make a difference in that community. So I'm excited about that. Absolutely. I was, I delighted about that. So there's, there's an idea. If you want to have an idea of how can I help purchase one of Bethany's books and bring it to your local library, get that attention out there. Um, But I just want to thank you for coming on here, sharing your heart and spending time with us. Thank you so much for having me. It was so fun. I I could talk all day too. So this is great. What an amazing conversation. Bethany made so many good points, such as you can't buy manna at Costco. God desires that we trust him with not just our soul, but our days. I also loved when Bethany spoke about God's peace, that she was free to stop asking for a miracle and simply rest in God. 
That is really what his peace is all about, knowing that he is good and he is in control no matter how high the waves roll. We can have his peace. For those who may have a friend going through something similar to Bethany, I hope the suggestions she made were helpful. Just be present. And don't be afraid to reach out with ideas to be a blessing to your friend. Like she said, they may not reach out to you, but you can extend your hand to them. Be that friend who just sits and lets you know that you're there for them. Be that friend who creates a safe environment for them to cry and not feel judged or made to feel weak. A good friend, a garage friend, is a true treasure to have and to become. If you are a mom like Bethany, I pray that your heart was encouraged and that you will always remember just how much God loves you. He doesn't want you to be perfect before coming to him. He just wants you to come. Don't forget to check out the link to Bethany's book, William Tries Again. And if you are blessed by this episode, be sure to share it with a friend. Have a wonderful day, my friends. Let's be women who are good friends and a reflection of God's love to those he sends into our lives. Mm -hmm.